Good morning. And it's so good to be with you here this morning. And uh, I give you all great credit here in the middle of a rainstorm, in the middle of a long weekend to take time out to worship. I'm so glad you're here. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, holy God, we ask that you would be in this place, that words beyond what I know myself might be spoken and that what might be heard beyond be beyond what I say. Amen. So our text this morning is filled with irony and even a little humor. Naaman has leprosy. Naaman is a great commander of the army of Aram, but no one great knows how to cure Naaman. A young girl from Israel, a captive of war, knows who can heal the commander. A captive servant girl knows a scruffy prophet in the Samaritan section of Israel who can do the job. And so Naaman went to his king, and the king agreed to send Naaman to Israel. Naaman's king even wrote a letter of introduction to the king of Israel, Dear King of Israel, whom I regularly raid and whose people I regularly kill and take captive, I am sending my high commander who has leprosy that you might cure him. Now the king of Israel is no fool. He has no idea how to cure leprosy. Aram regularly raids and victimizes and kills its neighbor Israel. Understandably, he thinks it is a ruse and that the king of Aram is simply looking for an excuse to pick another quarrel. The king of Israel rents his garments in despair. But today, Naaman is on an honest errand. Today, he comes not for war. He has come because he needs to be healed. Elisha the prophet hears about the humorous encounter in the court between Naaman and the Israelite king. And Elisha sends word to the king of Israel, do not fear. Send the man to me, I'll cure him. The king breathes, I'm sure, a sigh of relief and sends Naaman off. And so Naaman comes to Elisha's house. Such a simple sentence. Such a misleading sentence. Naaman, the high commander, comes to Elisha's house with his retinue, a grand array of horses and chariots and men. Elisha would have seen the dust flying for miles as Naaman approached. That is, Elisha would have seen the dust if he were standing outside his house. For Elisha's house was likely small and windowless and a hovel. Naaman's entourage was, would have dwarfed it in every way. Imagine Naaman and the great number with him, horses pawing at the ground, chariot wheels squeaking as they stutter back and forth, soldiers wondering aloud if this could possibly be this place. Naaman and his company surveyed, waiting for Elisha to emerge, 
But, of course, Elisha does not come forth in what can only be described as chutzpah. Elisha does not even stick his head out of the doorway. Instead, from the dark little house, Elisha sends a messenger out to Naaman, and the message is, go wash seven times in the River Jordan. You'll be fine. Naaman, of course, uh, excuse me, Naaman is, of course, incredulous. He says, if I needed to wash in a river, there are far better rivers in Aram than there are here in Israel. But that's not really what's bothering Naaman, is it? Naaman is furious at Elisha's affront. Naaman says, I thought for me he would surely come forth and stand and call on the name of the Lord, and he would wave his hands over the spot, and he would cure the leprosy. I thought that for me, he would surely come forth and call on the power of God and bring great incantations. I thought for me, he would surely come forth and do something impressive. The Hebrew here is not all that easy to translate adequately, for sometimes in biblical Hebrew, when it wants to emphasize something, it uses two forms of the same verb in succession, back to back. A more literal rendering might go something like this. Naaman says, look, I said to myself, surely he will come forth, surely he will come forth and call upon the name of the Lord and wave his hands. You get the point. Naaman thinks, that he is ooch. <laughs> Naaman is a man of privilege. In Naaman's mind and in Naaman's world, everything is all about him. He has a bothersome disease and he just needs someone to cure it for him. He has no idea, nor does he care what the healing requires. Naaman expects but a few things. He expects Elisha's obsequiousness. He expects some mystical hand-waving. He expects to hear an impressive incantation. He seeks assurance that the divine has come to attend on him, and he expects, in short, exceptional treatment. As a man of privilege, Naaman expects others to give their full attention to take care of his troubles. And actually, Naaman doesn't even really think about it. The expectations come naturally and reflexively to him. Surely he will come forth. He will come forth. Stand and call upon the name of the Lord for me. Naaman cannot see his world or himself clearly at all. As W.E.B. Du Bois coined in dark water voices from within the veil. As a man of privilege, Naaman's vision is obscured. Over everything he encounters, his privilege casts a veil through which he cannot see and onto which he projects his version of reality. In Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois describes this as double consciousness with which Black folks must deal with a veiled reality. Black folks, say, says Du Bois, know themselves as white, see them on the one hand, and as they know themselves truly to be 
on the other. Black folks, says Du Bois, must, double, uh, must juggle this double consciousness. And feminist writers such as Jean Baker Miller have noted a similar dynamic at work with male privilege. Miller asserts that women generally must understand men better than men understand themselves. Male privilege and power, she avers, allows men to get what they want simply by demanding it or taking it. For women to get what they want, she says, they often need to understand how men see things and act strategically and often defensively. They have to navigate a double consciousness. Now Naaman is flummoxed by Elisha. The prophet doesn't acquiesce to Naaman's expectations. Elisha doesn't act the way he's supposed to, the way it's projected on the veil. Elisha doesn't do what Naaman wants him to. All Naaman can see is the projection of his own perspective on the screen. Naaman can see only utter impropriety in how he was treated. An insignificant prophet living in a borough has insulted him, has refused to meet him face to face, has refused to wave his arms and call on God to heal the commander, and has sent him instructions through an underling, instructions simply to wash in the puny River Jordan. This is what Naaman sees, because Naaman cannot see beneath the veil. And he turns and he leaves in disgust. But again, in an irony, the story repeats itself. Naaman's servants, Naaman's underlings, come to his rescue in a move that shows the kind of perceptiveness of Naaman that Miller says women must have of men. The servants speak to Naaman obliquely. Politely, almost indirectly, they ask, well, now, if the prophet had commanded you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done that? By their ability to work within a double consciousness, Naaman's servants indirectly turn his direction. And so now the story moves to a tidy ending. Naaman relents. He immerses himself seven times in the Jordan, and he is healed. How it happens is something of a mystery. That he immersed himself seven times tells us as much. Immersing himself seven times tells us that the divine has intervened. But there's more, there's more here because Naaman immersed himself in the Jordan and the verb that is translated to do that is used but a small handful of times in the Hebrew Bible, 16 all told. It is usually translated as dipped. It's not the verb usually used for washing or bathing or cleansing. Most often it refers to objects dipped in blood. Hyssop was dipped in blood and painted on the doorposts in the Passover story. In the sin offering of atonement, the priest dips his finger into the blood of the sacrificial animal and sprinkles it before the veil. And in Leviticus, dipped blood is sprinkled on a person with leprosy. 
Naaman's immersion in the river is clearly meant to signal a deep and thorough cleaning. In it, we are meant to hear echoes of some of ancient Israel's most important religious rituals of purification. In some of those rituals, the priest sprinkles blood on the curtain of the sanctuary, the veil. This is Naaman's encounter with transcendence. This is Naaman's moment of transformation. And after his dip in the river, Naaman is a changed man. His flesh was recovered like the flesh of a young boy. And gone too is Naaman's aura of self-importance. He returns to Elisha. But this time, Naaman comes in humility and respect. He no longer demands reverence from Elisha or anyone else. Naaman has somehow heard the voices from the other side of Du Bois' veil. Only when he hears those most unlikely voices, captives, servants, Elisha, is Naaman healed. Is it too much to say that some of us may suffer from the disease that Naaman had. I'm pretty sure that I do. I struggle to grasp in a visceral way what it would mean for my life not to matter because of the color of my skin. To fear every traffic stop, to experience disrespect for no reason at all, but I can't quite see through the veil. I struggle to feel in my gut the double consciousness it takes to be a woman who has to know how someone like Donald Trump sees her and also hold on to what she knows herself truly to be. But I can't quite see through the veil. And so also I fail fully to see what my Jewish neighbors see who watch the bonfires of anti-Semitism blaze once again. And see what my Muslim neighbors feel when the veil takes on a double meaning in the context we've been talking about and my Hispanic neighbors are told to get behind a wall. But I cannot see clearly through the film of my own leprosy. It is no accident that it took Elisha's refusal to act as Naaman expected to finally break the cycle. Naaman could be cured only when Elisha refused to reflect Naaman's projection, when Elisha pulled back the veil. Just as Naaman's leprosy threatened to eat him alive, everyone in this story suffers, including those living in the blinding light of privilege. Everyone suffers when anyone's true being is occluded by the veil, when anyone must navigate a double consciousness in order to survive. No good 
can come from not being seen, neither can it come from not seeing. This is our dilemma, the location where our healing must come. Amen.